right, let's go. Let's get into it. If you got your Bibles, um, you can open them up. Uh, we're going to kind of bounce around a little bit this morning. Um, but if you want to kind of go to the kind of the main text for today, it's going to be in Mark 12. Mark 12 is where we're going to be. If you didn't bring a Bible, there's a blue one underneath the seat you're sitting in. And Mark 12 in the blue Bible is on page 941. 941 in the, in the Blue Bible. And as I said, it's going to take us a while to get there. Uh, we're going to bounce around a lot, but that is going to be kind of the main, the main piece for this morning. Hey, we have been in this series called The Path of Flourishing now. This is our third week. We have one more, one more week in The Path of Flourishing. Um, and what it is, it's really um, a, 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 an answer to what does discipleship look like at Flourishing Grace? Well, what does this look like, and, and how do we begin to live and experience the life that Jesus has called us to live, and experience the life that he's called us to experience, right? Uh, at the very beginning of this, uh, I, I quoted, there's a Barna study that was, that was done, and they asked Americans, right, the question, are you a Christian? Are, are you a Christian? And what they found is that 76%, which is a massive number, uh, 76% of Americans would say, yes, I am a Christian. 76%, that's a huge number. It's a huge number. But then as they begin to ask further questions, kind of probing in and saying, okay, are you actually doing the things that the Bible says Christians do, right? Are you actually practicing your faith? That number drops quickly, right, to 8%. Only 8% of Americans are actually doing the things that Jesus calls us to do. Only 8% of Americans are actually experiencing the life that Jesus offers them, that, that is extended to them, has called them to live, right? And so what we've kind of said all along is that there's this massive gap between the, what we say we are and what we actually are. For, for many of us, right, I, I realized this morning that more than 76% of us in the room would say that we're Christians, right? This is a, this is a Sunday gathering, right? This is a gathered church. I would hope that more than... 76% of us would say that we're Christians. But the truth is that for many of us, we are not experiencing the life that Jesus says that he came to offer us, right? We would say that we are tired, we're weary, we're busy, we're worn out. And I've said this again and again and again and again. The primary reason we don't experience the flourishing that Jesus offers is because though we say we are Christians— we're not really disciples of Jesus. The reason why we're not experienced, Jesus says, I mean, I came to give life and give it abundantly, John 10, 10, right? And I'll say, the, I mean, the reason why we're not experiencing this abundance of life, this fullness of life, is that even though we say, I man, I'm a follower of Jesus, we're not actually disciples of Jesus. I'm a Christian, but it's a, I'm not a disciple. It's a discipleship issue. And so we've been unpacking what discipleship is over the past several weeks. We are people constantly being shaped, right? We're constantly being shaped by the world, by culture. Culture is the greatest disciple maker of our day. It's shaping and molding our practices. It's shaping and molding our habits, like we talked about habits a minute ago. It's shaping and molding uh, the, our identities. It's shaping and molding um, our wants and our desires and our loves. Culture is constantly shaping these things. And so rather than being a disciple where these things are being shaped by, by Christ, by through the Holy Spirit, and by his word, right, where it's being shaped by culture. And then we wonder why I'm not experiencing the life that Jesus offers. And so since this is a discipleship issue, we've been unpacking 
discipleship. And we've kind of said so far that discipleship involves a community of people, right? That's what we talked about week one. This cannot happen alone. It does not happen in isolation, okay? A community of people seeking to be with Jesus, to do what Jesus did, and to become like him. And so last Sunday, we talked about this idea of being with Jesus. If you want to experience the life that Jesus has on offer, if you want to be his disciple, you've got to be with him. You've got to be with him, right? If you missed that, you can go back and listen to that, flourishinggrace.org slash listen. And today we're going to move on. We're going to talk about what does it look like to actually do what Jesus did, to follow Jesus, to begin to emulate him, to begin to put into practice the way that he lived his life. We must do what Jesus did. We must follow him. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I talked about kind of these Jewish, uh, kind of in first century Israel, like the Jewish schools, right? Um, the, the, the Beit Midrash, um, the Beit Seder, right? These are these schools um, that, that the, the, the little Jewish boys and girls would have kind of grown up going to um, a, as they kind of matured. It was where they learned to read and write. All right, and, and they would practice the, the things that they, they would read and write through the Torah, they were studying the Torah, by memorizing the Torah, by reading and writing it. And, and eventually, you got to get to the place where you just graduate. There's nothing beyond that, except for the, the most elite of the elite, the smartest of the smart, this very, 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 very small number of men, and only men, women were not allowed to, to practice this, right? They, they, would, they would become a, a part of the Beit Talmud. And essentially, it was kind of this tryout, tryout to, to eventually maybe become a Talmudim, which is where we get the word disciple. What they would do is they would kind of try out, they would go and they would kind of apprentice under or shadow under for a moment. They would try out before a rabbi. We've talked about this over the past few weeks. The rabbis were kind of these insanely popular men of the day. They, they were like um, the world-famous movie stars or, or superstar athletes of the day. When they came into town, right, everybody would gather to hear the rabbi talk, right? And the Talmudim were, were the rabbi's disciples. And so you would have a chance to kind of try out, if you were the sharpest, the brightest, the smartest, like this very, very small number of men were ever invited to even try out. And if you could hack it, eventually the rabbi would turn to you and say, come, follow me. Come, come follow me. He would, it was an invitation to come and follow him, right? When Jesus says to his disciples, come follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. That was, not, uh, that was not a new phrase or a new saying. Jesus wasn't creating that. It was a common saying of the day where these rabbis would, would turn to, their, to, these, to, these, to these men who were trying out, and they would say, come follow me. Come follow me, and I'll make you a great teacher. I'll make you a great rabbi. And they become the Talmudim. We've talked about this idea that, that, that the ancient Hebraic blessing over the Talmudim was maybe covered in the dust of your rabbi. Maybe so close to them that the dust would, would that their dust would, that they would cover you as they, as they walk down the street, that the dust they kicked up would cover you, right? But it was more than that, right? The, the goal of the Talmudim was not to um, kind of become greater than the rabbi. Like that was, n that was not even... Uh, that's something that would be entered into their mind. There's nothing greater than the rabbi. The rabbi was, the, the goal was not to impress the rabbi with their smarts. The goal was not to get an A. The goal was not to, in some way, some, some way shape, or form, graduate with, 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 a, with a degree. That was not it at all. The goal of the Talmudim was to study the rabbi and to do exactly what the rabbi did. 
The Talmudim would watch the rabbi all day, every day, and they would try to emulate him in every single way. They would study how the rabbi eats his food, and they would try to eat their food in the exact same way. They would study how the rabbi goes to sleep, and they would go to sleep in the exact same way. They would study, is he, like, is he a side sleeper? Does he sleep on his belly? Does he sleep on his back? I don't know, but that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do it just like he does. They'd study how he wakes up in the morning and the rhythms and the patterns that he does when he wakes up in the morning. They would do the exact same thing. In our culture today, right, we, 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 we enter into the workplace and we want to be greater than our boss. We think that we have better ideas than our boss. We think that we're smarter than our boss. We know that we, we, can, we can actually perform the task better than our boss. I should be CEO. Why am I? Like this, uh, it, it, this idea never entered into the mind of the Talmudim. They wanted to be just like the rabbi. And so they would try to do exactly what he did. They would emulate him in every single way to, to, the, to the finest of details. And for those of us who want to come after Jesus and want to be disciples of Jesus, we must do exactly what Jesus did. And even more so, as one pastor said, if you want to experience the life that Jesus has on offer, we must become a people who adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. We must live the life that he lived. It's silly to think that we could, in some way, shape, or form, experience all of the life that Jesus has on offer without, without actually participating in the life that he lived. That's not how it works. Right? We, we think, especially, okay, in our, in our culture today, right, um, the younger millennials, I'm going to pick on you for a moment, and kind of the older Gen Z right now, who, those who are entering the workforce right now and maybe have been for the past few years, right, they enter, they enter the workforce, um, and this, this generation, kind of younger millennials, it's the first generation who have, who have grown up with their parents and never seen their parents struggle to make ends meet. Ne- never seen them struggle, right? Now, that's, that's a broad statement, but it's true. It's, it's for this generation, kind of the younger millennials and Gen Z, they never seen their parents struggle to make ends meet. Right? They, they're, they're growing up underneath the wealthiest generation that has ever lived in the, in the history of the United States of America. Right? They, they've, they've grown up going on elaborate vacations and going to Disney World and Disneyland multiple times. There's never been a moment when they've seen their parents struggle to just hack it. They've always had. They've always had it. And so now they're beginning to enter the, the workplace, and they want the same thing that their parents had. They expect to make the same amount of money starting off in their career as their parents did when they were 30, 40, 50, maybe even 60 years old. They want the same level of house, and they want the same level of car. They want the same level of neighborhood. They want the same title at their job. I want it all. But they don't want to go through the process of starting kind of an entry-level position and working their way up. I don't have time for that. I'm better than that. I got a college degree. My mama told me that I'm good. I can do whatever I want to do. I got to put my mind to it, right? That's what, that's what mom told me. And they're struggling to figure this out. In the same way, for those of us who look at the life of Jesus, or we look at the life that Jesus offers and promises us, say, that's what I want. I want to live that. I want to experience that. And, and so we begin to kind of enter into uh, faith and Christianity. And we're like, why isn't this working? Why don't I experience that? And we realize that 76% of us would say, I mean, I'm a Christian, but only 8% are actually experiencing the life that Jesus offers us. So well, why is that? I don't understand. Like, what am I? Because we have not adopted the lifestyle of Jesus. It's like saying, I man, I want to I lose weight. 
while eating milkshakes and pounding pizza every day. It's silly. You laugh at that, but we're doing the same thing. We're doing the same thing. It's just as silly to say, man, I, I want to live the life that Jesus offers without living the life that Jesus lived. You can't have it both ways. You can't have it both ways. We must begin to follow Jesus. It does not work any other way. We must become followers of the way. You see, in the early church in the book of Acts, um, Christians didn't call themselves Christians, right? Do you know what they called themselves? Do you know what Christianity was called in the book of Acts? What it was known as? Anybody? It's known as the way. Capital W, the way, right? Whenever we, whenever we see these, these groups of Christians referred to, they're referred to as uh, the part of this thing called the way, followers of the way, belonging to the way, right? And it was the way of Jesus. It was the people living out a new way, a new lifestyle that Jesus had taught them. The rabbi had taught them. We see this um, in, in Acts 9, uh, which is Saul's conversion. But before he's converted, it says this. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the capital W, the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. If he finds any Christians, if he finds any that are belonging to this thing called the way, he's going to arrest them and bring them to Jerusalem. We see this in other places in Acts. Another one is Acts 19, 23. It says this, About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. Capital W, the way, right? There's this hubbub, there's this kind of this, we call this buzz going on concerning this new thing called the way. It's the way of Jesus. Jesus teaching his people how to live a new way of life. The way is a lifestyle, the lifestyle of Jesus. You see, Jesus invites everybody to become his disciple. This, is, this, was, a, this was a new thing that Jesus did, right? The rabbis of, of the day would have a small handful of men that were allowed to become their disciple. But Jesus, in Matthew 28, we've quoted a bunch during this series, says, says go, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. See, everybody's welcome to come be my disciple. Everybody is, 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 is invited to come and practice the way, my way. Everybody's invited to come and study my life, my mannerisms, how I do what I do, and come and follow me. Everybody is invited to come be my Talmudim, to begin to emulate me in every single way. And this is why the early church is known as the way. Well, what is the way of Jesus? The way of Jesus, we see this throughout Scripture. Um, in fact, the, the, the kind of the, the, the number one, kind of the main kind of famous teaching of Jesus, right, is the Sermon on the Mount. And we actually walked through the sermon. We, said, we spent four months in the Sermon on the Mount last year because we were rolling out 
this whole path of flourishing thing, and we, we were going to roll out path of flourishing and path groups and all this stuff. And so we wanted to set up the Sermon on the Mount as like this: this is the way of Jesus. Let's go live this out. And then 2020 hit, and it all went crazy, right? But at the beginning of 2020, we spent the whole first four months of the year walking through the Sermon on the Mount together, right? Jesus said, "Man, there's a new kingdom, and I am the King, and this is the kingdom ethic." The number one thing Jesus talked about more than he talked about anything else was the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. Everywhere he went, he preached the kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom. There's a new way. There's a new kingdom ethic, a new way. If you want to come after me and you want to be a part of my kingdom, here is the way that we will do life. He, here is the new way. It's unpacked in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus came to usher in the kingdom of God. A new way. The call of Jesus is, is to come and live the lifestyle of the king with the king for all eternity. Jesus, who is the king of all kings, invites us to live the lifestyle of the king with the king for all eternity. In order to do this, we must, we must begin to do what Jesus did now, for so many of us, right, when we begin to kind of hear this call, you say, Josh, wait, you want me to live like Jesus lived? Like, Jesus is like Jesus. And I'm like, me. You want me to live like Jesus lived? Yes. Yes, I do. I believe that that is the call of Christ. It's not a call. It's not a command. It's an invitation to come and follow me, to come and live the way I live, to come and actually do the things that I did. Come follow me. Emulate my life. Emulate my life. Yes, that is what we are to do. And suddenly we, we can become overwhelmed and kind of anxious. There's like so many things. I have to study the life of Jesus and I have to parse out all the things that he ever did. And I need to begin to practice all of these things his, his preaching and his teaching, healing people, right? How am I going to, what am I going to do? How is this possible? Here's what I'm going to do this morning, okay? For the rest of our time, I want to take all that Jesus did, and I want to kind of break it into two categories. Just kind of funnel it down into two things. I said earlier, over the next 12 months, we are going to roll out these teachings on habits. And each one of these habits is going to help us begin to put into practice the things that Jesus did. Okay? We're, we're going to look at things like silence and solitude, and fasting, and studying our Bible, at one thing every month for the next 12 months, okay? But today, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to simplify this for us. I want to make this as simple as possible for us. To funnel it down into kind of just two, two buckets, two categories. And I would argue that everything that Jesus did, everything that he did, fits into these two buckets, into these two categories. And all of the elements of the way fall into either one or both of these. And so if you are following along in your Bible, if you pulled it out earlier in Mark 12, here's where we're going to spend the rest of our time. Mark 12, and we're going to pick it up in verse 28. Some of you already know where this is going, but I'm, I'm hoping today that you'll see a couple new things as we walk through this. Mark 12, verse 28, reads this way. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he, he being Jesus, Answered them well, asked him. Now let's stop there for just a quick second. Um, here, here's the context. 
the Pharisees and the Sadducees, if you, if you read your Bible, the Pharisees and the Sadducees are always trying to get Jesus to say something dumb, okay? Always. They're asking him trick questions. They're asking him questions where there's no good answer, right? Trying to get him to say something so that they can hold on to it and be like, this guy believes this or this guy said that. All right? They're constantly doing this. And this is what's actually happening. This is the context. The, the Pharisees in the... Uh, um, the Pharisees have come, and they're asking Jesus a really, really hard question. And Jesus, as he always does, is nailing it. He's nailing it. And the scribe hears Jesus nailing the answer to the question. He's like, wow, this guy's sharp. And so the scribe asks a question. But here's the deal. This, this scribe, I do not believe, is trying to trick Jesus. This is a genuine question from a man who genuinely, genuinely wants to honor God with all of his life. This is a very, very devout man of God who wants to please God, who wants to honor God with all of his life. And so he, see, he sees this super sharp rabbi and says, I, I, I got to ask this guy a question because he's so smart. I want to ask him. And so he asked Jesus this question there in verse 28. He says, which commandment is the most important of all. I want to know so that I can do it. I want to, fall, I want to make sure I'm, I'm nailing this one. What's the one? Jesus answered, verse 29, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, and all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. Now, I, I want to be really, here's what we've done. We've, we've butchered this, okay? When, when, if, I, if you were to walk into the room this morning before we ever talked about any of this, and I said, hey, what's the most important commandment, right? You, you would have said, right? For those of you who have grown up going to church, you would have said, man, love God and love people. L love God, love your neighbor, right? That's it. That's what we do. No, 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 no. no. That, that's not what Jesus says. That is not what he says. Now, y yes. Here's what Jesus, this is what, this is crazy. Jesus is taking the entire law and condensing it down to two laws, okay? And we have to, we, for some reason, in our kind of Western Christianity, we, we feel the need to condense it down even farther, right? So how can I boil this down to just two things, love God, love people? Like, that's it. That's not it, though. That's not what he says. Jesus quotes what's known as the Shema, right? This comes from Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 10. Um, he says, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Hear, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But Jesus says the most important commandment is this. There's only one God. The most important commandment is this. There's only one singular God. Only ever has been, only ever will be, always has been, always will be one singular God, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God, right? There's only one God. There's only one God. This is what Jesus is declaring. This is what he's saying. The most important law is this, that you believe in only one God. That is the most important law. And if that's true, if there's only one singular God, then that God is worthy of all of your love, all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, and all of your strength. Because there's only one God. If there's only one God, right, that God is worthy of all. Now listen, if there's more than one God, what Jesus is saying here is incredibly dumb. But there's only one God. 
You see, what Jesus is saying, if, if, Jesus, if Jesus is saying, listen, worship this one singular God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, even though there's a plethora of gods, that's stupid. You've just ticked off all of the other gods. It's, 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 it's the dumbest thing ever. Why would you do that? Don't do that. You want all the gods to be happy with you. You need to worship them all equally as best you can. But that's not true, is it? There's only one God. And because there's only one God, that one God is worthy of all of our love. An intense love with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength. If there was, you see, so, so to believe in more than one God is to disobey the most important commandment of Christ in the entire Bible. To believe there's more than one God is, 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 a, is, is a chief sin. It's breaking the most important commandment. This is, this is an offense to our God. There's only one God. And because there's only one God, he's worthy of all of our love. To love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus goes on in verse 31. He says, the second is like it, this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these, right? So to love our God, this one singular God, with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength, and then to love our neighbor as ourself. These are the two, they are inseparable. Jesus doesn't break them apart. These are the two greatest commandments. Now, normally, the, the pastor stops there, and he goes on to unpack loving God and loving your neighbor and breaks it down to even a simpler form. I want you to see what happens next, though. Look at verse 32. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other beside him. Now again, for anyone who would say, in first century Israel, they believed in more than one God, they just worshiped one God, well, just, just read, just, just read it. All right, I'll stop. There's so much more. Um, verse 33. And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as himself is much more than the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. There's nothing greater than this. It's more than all of that. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, listen to this, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. You are not far from the kingdom of God. Here's what Jesus is saying to this man. When this, when this scribe says, Jesus, you're right. You're right. That is it. That's, that is the law. That's the law. You've nailed it. That's, that's more important than all of the other sacrifices. It's more important than all the other. Jesus, Jesus looks at him and he says, you're not far from the kingdom of God. What Jesus is communicating to him is, you are not far from, from what the followers of the way are following you're not far off from everything that I've been teaching. Everywhere I go, I'm teaching about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says, man, you've got it. Like, you've, you understand it. You're not far off from it. You're not far off from becoming a follower of the way, which was a highly kind of controversial thing in his day. Jesus says, yeah, you, you've got it. That's it. It all boils down to two things. Loving the one singular God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself. And this, this is what Jesus did. This is the way of the kingdom, and this is the way of Jesus. Jesus loved 
God. He loved God more than anything else in this world, with all of his heart, with all of his soul, with all of his mind, with all of his strength. I'm going to show you a couple of verses. John 5, 30, Jesus says this. He says, I, Jesus, can do nothing on my own. This is Jesus. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judge is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. I don't do anything of my own will. I do everything of the will of the Father. I'm fully, completely obedient and subject to him. By choice, by choice, Jesus does this. John 14, 28 through 31, Jesus says this to his disciples. He says, you have heard me say to you, I'm going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father and the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise and let's go from here. This is perfect obedience out of perfect love. Jesus loves the Father perfectly. He, he says, man, if you, if you knew me, if you loved me, you would be rejoicing when I say I have to go away. I'm going to the Father. Like, if we get, let's start. We should, we should be partying, right? For, for the 8%, for those who are actually following Jesus, right? Death is just the gate to eternal joy. It's the one final obstacle to eternal fullness and delight being with him and being with the Father. Like, party. Jesus like, if you knew me, if you love me, you would be rejoicing because I get to go to be with the Father. And then he, and he goes on to say, Satan has no hold on me because I am perfectly obedient to the Father. And why am I perfectly obedient to him? Because I want the whole world to know that I love him with all of my heart, with all of my soul, with all of my mind, with all of my strength. When the world looks at Jesus, they see perfect submission out of perfect love. He's not doing this because he's afraid of the Father. He's not doing this because he's like, oh man, I don't want to get a spanking. He's not, no. He's like, I love the Father perfectly. And so I want to worship him and adore him perfectly. For Jesus, his praying, his teaching, his life, his mission are all in subject to him. The goal of Jesus' life was to demonstrate to the world that the Father was better than life. In every way, we are to emulate Jesus, but Jesus is emulating the Father. In, in uh, Colossians 1, 15, it says that he is the image of the invisible God. Jesus. Do you want to know what God looks like? Look at Jesus. He's the image of the invisible God. Hebrews in Hebrews 1 says that he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. Hebrews 1, 3. Jesus is emulating the Father. And we are called to emulate Christ. As disciples of Jesus, in all we do, we demonstrate that Jesus is better. The goal of the life of the follower of Jesus is to live in such a way that demonstrates to the world that Jesus is better than life. Let me say that again. The goal of the life of the follower of Jesus is to live in such a way that demonstrates to the world that Jesus is better than life. Jesus lives in such a way 
that the world might know that he loves the Father. I'm perfectly obedient to him, so that the world would know that I perfectly love him. Friends, that's the call of our life. As we, as we begin to kind of say, okay, what does it look like to actually follow Jesus, to, to, to do what Jesus did? We are to live in such a way, in perfect radical obedience to him, that the world around us, the people in your office, the people in your neighborhood, the people in your family, know that Jesus is better than, than life, that you perfectly love him. It's out of perfect love and delight in him that you worship him with all that you are and all that you have. This is how we live our life. The way we spend money is to demonstrate to the world that Jesus is greater than money. The way, the way that we live our lives and go to work is to demonstrate to the world that Jesus is greater than work. The, the, way, the way that we love our kids and our spouse is to demonstrate to the world that Jesus is actually greater than my kids and my spouse. The way that I love my friends, the way, the way that I buy a house, the way that I buy a car, is to demonstrate to the world that Jesus is better than my house, my car, my friends. He's greater than all things. I love him. And I love my God with all of my heart, with all of my soul, all of my mind, and all of my strength. All right, I'm out of time. Quickly, we must love our neighbor. Jesus loved his neighbor. In Mark 10, 45, Jesus says this. He says, for this, even the Son of Man came not to serve, but to serve. Not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came. Not to serve, not to be served, but to serve and to give up his life to love his neighbor. He came to love his neighbor. I, I love Matthew eleven, nineteen. This is a critique of Jesus. The scribes and the Pharisees are kind of ripping on him, and they say this. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and a sinner. Yet wisdom is justified by their deeds, right? It says that Jesus came eating and drinking. That's what he was known as. That's what he was known for, was constantly eating and constantly drinking with everybody. That's just what he did. That's what he did. Everywhere he went, he was eating and drinking. He, he was known, that they, they called him a glutton because he's constantly eating. They called him a drunk because he's constantly drinking wine. Like, constantly, everywhere he went, he's sitting around with people, eating food and drinking wine. That's what Jesus did. It's what he was marked by. It's what he did, right? Um, for those of you who were here a couple weeks ago, right, we talked about the, when Jesus meets Matthew or Levi, right, the tax collector, meets him at the tax booth. And what, is he, what does he do? You guys remember? What do they do? They go to his house and they eat. He said, Matthew, let's go to you. Let's go to your And he, Matthew gets all of his friends, all the other tax collectors and all the other sinners, and they get, they get together and they eat. When Jesus meets Zacchaeus, right, you know, the wee little man, the wee little man was he, right, Zacchaeus in the, in, the, in the tree, right? Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector, right, chief tax collector. What do they do? Go to his house and eat. That's what they do. They go to, and he gets all of his friends, all of his other tax collector friends, all of his other sinner friends. He's like, let's go eat. That's what they do. Why does Jesus do this? Why does he do it? Is it because he's a party animal? Just like loves to party. Like, that's it, man. I just, just party, right? No. No. Is he, is he like a hardcore extrovert? Just said, man, it's got to be with people. No, Jesus is constantly retreating. He's constantly practicing silence and solitude. He's constantly getting away to be alone with the Father. Constantly, all the time, slipping away, hiding, right, where people can't find him. All the time. Jesus loves his neighbor. You see, often when we preach on this idea of loving, loving our neighbor, we, we tie it to the, to the 
the parable of the Good Samaritan, right? Which is right, it's good, right? The parable of the Good Samaritan is this, um, is this radical picture of reconciliation. Now, the, the Samaritan and the, and the Jew, they should not, they should not be loving each other, they should not be caring for each other, they shouldn't be doing it. But like when we do that, we take this so far, and we t- take loving our neighbor to like this extreme example. But Jesus' example of loving his neighbor is just eating and drinking with people who are not like him. I just said a minute ago that Jesus was radically obedient to the Father so that the world might see and the world might know that he loved the Father perfectly. These men and all the other men and women that Jesus ate and drank with were not that at all. They were not like him. They were not like him. That did not mark Zacchaeus. The love of the Father did not mark Zacchaeus' life. Like, not at all. The love of money did, but not the love of the Father. Jesus says, I'm going to eat with you. And all the Pharisees and all the scribes and all the Sadducees were like, what is wrong with this guy? Like, what is, what is wrong with him? What a drunk. What, what, a, what a glutton. Eating with sinners. What is, who does that? Like, doesn't he, right? Jesus loved his neighbor. He loved his neighbor. Constantly eating and drinking with people who were not like him. And so I wonder, I wonder what would happen if Flourishing Grace Church became known as people who love Jesus more than they loved anything in the world, and they loved their neighbor. What if we were marked by eating and drinking? What if we were the people who were constantly, constantly seeking to love our neighbors by throwing parties for them? Like we were just like the life of the neighborhood. Parties always at our house, right? And our, our, our neighbors are always invited. We throw a party every week for our neighbors. We throw a party every week for our one. What would happen? What would happen if we became known as the people who eat and drink with people who are not like us? My wife Desiree and I have committed to something this summer. We'll see how it goes. But we're going to throw a party for our neighbors every single week. We've committed to kind of living our summer in our front yard. We have a big backyard, and normally we, we have a bunch of stuff going on in the backyard. We have friends over, and it's always in the backyard. It's always in the backyard. This is the summer we're going to do it all in the front yard. We're just going to kind of open the invite to all the neighbors to say, come, come on, come, bring your kids over. Well, we got this big inflatable, like, water slide thing. It's crazy. It's like, come, come play. Come, come play. Your kids can come. They can play in the water slide. We're just going to sit out in the front yard, and we're just going to roll out the roll out the food and the drink and just have a good time every single week for our neighbors and just see what happens. Like, what might happen? What might happen if we begin to love Jesus with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, and all of our strength, and radical obedience to him out of love while eating and drinking with our neighbors regularly, throwing parties for them? Well, we might begin to look more like Jesus, and Davis County might begin to look more like heaven. So friends, that's my hope for us today, that we would begin to seek to emulate the life of Christ, that we begin to do what he did. And rather than overcomplicating this and making it into some big thing that's like, oh, this is impossible, there's no way I can do all the things that Jesus did, that we just simplify it. That I'm going to love God with all of my heart, one singular God, with all of my heart, with all of my soul, with all of my mind, with all of my strength. I'm going to love my neighbor as myself. Let me pray for you guys. Father, we come before you. We praise you for your word. We praise you for the sweetness of your word. We praise you for the life of Christ. I pray that we become a people who give, who give the rest of our days 
to studying his life, that we would know and read and reread and study and restudy, that we would know the life of Jesus, that we'd know the Gospels. We'd look at everything that he did, look at how he did it, that we begin, be, that we begin to emulate him, that we would belong to the way of Christ. That the world would look in, that that's what they would see. They would see people who look like Jesus. Not some shiny, white, spiritual, angelic thing, but a man who radically loved God and loved his neighbor. Jesus, would you help us as a church? Would you help us to love our neighbor? Would you help us to love you? Would you help us to become a people of, of devotion to your word, of devotion to prayer, seeking to love you, seeking to know you, devoted to habits, good habits and obedience? Would you help us to put aside money in our budget every month to throw a party for our neighbors? do life with them, to engage with them, that they might see the love of Christ in us and through us. Shape us and mold us. I pray these things in your name. In the name of Jesus, amen.